It is Sunday, October 23rd. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Excellent. And uh, 2016 Film Cult is here finally at long last after a great deal of effort with a fan commentary for John Carpenter's uh, seminal classic Halloween. I can't believe we're doing this at last. We've been talking about this for about a year now. Literally since last year when we did the It Follows commentary. Oh, wow. Uh, so we are paused up here at uh, basically when the Compass International logo uh, fully fades in. We are paused there. We'll give you some time to get set up. Hitting play in three, two, one, play. Hmm. Uh, okay, there we go. So starting off, uh, who is uh, who is present with us today? Who made it out? Michelle Rainier. Uh, me, Willie Greer. And Ron Lee. And Dan Gildark up in Seattle. And Damon Gaynor also up in Seattle. Skype is always a, always a bugaboo. And uh, oh. getting our getting our friends here today uh, via Skype was a big task. So thank you, Ron, for pulling that off. Our master yeah. troubleshooter. Skype is the real pure evil. It's true. Yes. <laughs> and really, it was actually it was Damon. Damon was, was the one who made this happen. So, I'm a, I'm a genius. <laughs> okay, I, I gotta say, just jumping right in. This this music. When I was a kid, oh. Halloween did not heard this music on my TV. <laughs> and after that, like it's you know that's when the holiday officially kicked in and and things could get weird. Oh my god! I never noticed how sloppily that pumpkin was carved. Look at that. Absolutely. They did that shortcut with the nose and the mouth. Just did it's not gonna... give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> it adds there... to the authenticity. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and talking about the music and talking about sloppiness coming up here in just a second, you're going to hear a clam hit on the piano in uh, the opening theme. The first thing that you hear in the movie, uh, right after John's music credit, right here. Blink and blink it. There's a little missed note there. And I have to tell you, after, after all this time, I... I it's it's it, like if there's if there any new version that doesn't have that mistake in it is not the real version to me. Hmm. And I'm so glad that Carpenter never decided to go back and Lucas this thing and fix some of the uh, the mistakes because I guess a lot like Carnival of Souls, like it's just such a big part of what makes the movie amazing is the fact that it works despite all the mistakes in this thing, and there are a lot. Hmm. What are you guys saying? Yours don't have the uh, the Jar Jar Binks version. <laughs> I think I have the wrong version of this movie. Oh, oh yeah, that's the, that's the 40th Ron, anniversary turn it off. version. We gotta start all over <laughs> again. <laughs> Whole movie ruined. So if he takes off his mask, it is the Jar Jar Binks version. <laughs> he just never does that. So what was interesting to me about the that soundtrack starting off is that it actually starts off before any credits even opening up. Oh, mm. pretty rare. Mm. I remember Carpenter talk, talking about that in an interview one time. With all of his early films would have like a this long drawn out sequence where you just hear music and see the credits and it was like a, he explained it, it was a cost cutting measure because he could stretch out the runtime um, he could save money and not actually have to like pay actors to talk and stuff like he's a very pragmatic guy yeah i think the rule was like get as much footage as possible but shoot as few takes as possible something like that hmm. yep. And that's why, like, in Assault on Precinct 13, you've got, like, a five-minute scene of uh, Darwin Justin, like, getting out of his car, stretching, pulling his <laughs> keys out, locking it. <laughs> Creating tension. Yeah. 
that's but, a, that's I, but a, I, have, I have to say, I mean, like, uh, it's probably just a nostalgic thing or whatever. It's just, it's, it's, it's how it was imprinted cinematically. So, I always have a problem with movies that start totally cold. An opening scene followed by opening credits is fine, but. For me, that that opening credits bit with the with the opening title theme, it's like the transition into the world of the movie for me. It always has been. Absolutely, let you settle in. For anyone counting at home, uh, the countdown to Judith Meyer's boyfriend's premature ejaculation was twenty seconds. <laughs> T minus twenty five seconds. <laughs> and uh, here comes a camera shadow, I think, on the right. Oh yeah, there oh, we go. Oh. So Willie and I were talking about this fact on the way here that um, there's been commentary done on this film so many times um, uh-huh. by so many different people that it's really unlikely that any of us is going to have some, you know, earth shattering new observation about the movie. Um, and so uh, that takes the pressure off. <laughs> I'm just putting that out there. If anything, Are you in yet? Oh, I'm done. But if anybody <laughs> says something original, I'll give you $100. Hmm. I'm pretty sure Not nobody really. said premature ejaculation on a commentary for this. So. <laughs> <laughs> Already, Damon's brought this one home. <laughs> and here comes the, the bumpiest Panaglide shot ever filmed. And I mean, to give them credit, this was like the very, very beginning of... Uh, the Panaglide's use in films. Uh, this might be one of the very first movies to use it, actually. Um, we've got Ray Stella, um, who was Dean Cundy's camera person, doing his best to get up these fucking stairs with this Panaglide on and not doing too well. It's a narrow staircase. It really is, man. And that was a cumbersome apparatus back then. I mean, that wasn't just like a, a sleek, stealth little thing. Yeah. By the time, like, Robert Rodriguez talked about using one for Desperado, and he had to take, like, a week-long class to, like, develop the muscles to use it. Yeah, they're really tricky. Really tricky to get all um, get used to using them. And, yeah, generally, the operator, you know, the Steadicam, Panaglide operators, that's all they do. They specialize in it. Mentioning things like this being Deborah Hill's hand here in the shot are, are like, Total. obvious things that are in, in other... Well, I mean, like this is probably gonna, this is probably going to be a, just the a greatest hits of everything everyone's ever said about this movie. Yeah, that <laughs> that comment wasn't to put the pressure on; it was to take it off. And Damon already won a hundred dollars, so. <laughs> so I'm just curious: so, what's the difference between a Panaglide and a Steadicam? Uh, Panaglide was uh, developed by Panavision. And, and I believe I think, it was first. Yeah, it was right? first. I think I think Carpenter said, I don't know if it's where it was really first used, but he saw it first in uh, Exorcist 2. <laughs> oh, who's the little guy? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's if, a cute little if Judah's boyfriend hadn't been so freaking quick, <laughs> they would have totally walked in on them having sex. So really, Michael, so, he saved everybody. So I guess... Um, so that one, that mom of her putting her hands in her pockets was like one of the few, like notes that I didn't really get or buy, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's well, it was very... interesting. Oh, go ahead. Oh no, it's just. I mean, it's a very. It's a moment that asks you to kind of accept a lot. It's very cinematic the way they just kind of stand there mm-hmm. uh, for the length of that that uh, crane shot. Mm-hmm. And it kind of just lets you know right off the bat what kind of a filmmaker you're dealing with. Like he's he's very much of the cinematic school. Are they in shock? Do you, do you know if they, they kept the, the crane for the whole 
like some of the lights, the lighting setups possibly could have used it, but it, that, I think that's the only camera crane shot that they it is, yeah. did, wasn't it? Yeah. So yeah, right out of the bat, you've got that uh, Goodfellas-style several-minute-long tracking shot, followed by a crane shot. Pretty fucking ambitious for a $300,000 movie. Now they're in uh, John Carpenter's garage. Where, uh, this is all process, right? Yeah. All process. So many things happen in that garage. The uh, the jack-o'-lantern at the beginning, the tracking shot happened mm. there. Um, Maggie's dead body in Escape from New York was shot as an insert in his garage. So it should be a historical Absolutely. treasure. It's a monument. <clears throat> uh. <laughs> so here we are introduced to uh, Dr. Sam Loomis. Um who is technically you could call him the protagonist of the story because he's the one that's really driving the plot and he's definitely the most active character outside of Michael Myers. Um, in terms of his archetype, he's really amazing. You know, it's Halloween, it, it, it's playing, I, I personally maintain, I believe that with a handful of exceptions, horror films are liberal philosophically. Uh, even this one, even though it's playing with uh, conservative ideas, mainly the idea that uh, the psychiatrist who's devoted his life to healing and rehabilitating has finally come up against a patient who he believes is pure evil, uh, which is kind of like hearing a priest say that there's no God. Um, and now he's kind of going to devote the rest of his life to tracking down and killing uh, the person that he tried to heal for seven years that's and then a, tried to contain for another... Sorry? It's pretty awesome. I think that's something that... Um, you know, most people who are naturally helpers or healers uh, could count among their greatest fears is that they come across someone that they, you know, just can't help but loathe. Does it make you think of uh, like the zombies' first appearances in Night of the Living Dead with the gowns? It, absolutely. And it almost has like a, you know, an old school, you know, Halloween ghost feel to it. You know, just these white sheets. <laughs> yeah, that will pop up again later, now that you mention it. But yeah, no, it's a great, uh, wonderful, tragic kind of character arc for, for Dr. Loomis. I think it's got its roots in um, almost like Phantom of the Opera as, a, as an archetype of, uh, of a wounded artist who turns to destruction instead of creation well what, what struck me is the last time I watched this movie uh, the, the big sort of cliche with uh, 70s slasher films which this was like the was it was usually re like revenge based there was always some kind of you know you know the killers out to settle a score from years ago um, either that or they're just a straight psychopath like you know uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and in this case Everything is counterintuitive. John Carpenter, like, deliberately does everything in reverse. Michael Myers is not avenging anything. He's going back to commemorate something that he did himself. And, uh, but he's acting something, which just kind of fucks with the, with your head. It just, it, you know, it kind of nests in the back of your head mm -hmm. and sits there like, this doesn't make any sense. You know, why is this guy doing this? That there's um, no reason for him to kill. He's just he, he is preoccupied with killing. He an unreasoning 
Yeah. Just kind of wanders around and kills. Yeah. But there is a pattern to his killing, which makes you think that there's a reason for it. Well, but, I mean, there's, but there there's a pattern to that. They're, they're all babysitters. <laughs> yeah. But, but, then, but then he fixates on one, like he's just, he's a pass to kill all the babysitters. Um, <laughs> and, you know, in, in part two, they, they came up with an explanation for that, but I think the beauty of this was that there is no explanation. It's just absolutely. everything yeah. absolutely stripped yeah. down to the nuts and bolts. This is John Carpenter showing you what horror is mm-hmm. in its purest form. Uh, just this unbiased supernatural force. Yeah. The uh, the book Shock Value um, refers to Michael. That's a great book. It really is. It refers to Michael as the thing in between. Uh, not quite being fully human or fully supernatural. Uh, obviously, there's something. There's got to be something supernatural going on uh, if, he, if he keeps coming back to life. But um, it's more just like completely irrational. That's what he represents: is this complete rift and something totally irrational is allowed to creep into the world. Mm. And Loomis reinforces that. Who, as you, you mentioned, is a man of science who's basically been turned into a a, a zealot um <laughs> it's kind of an abraham van helsing character who just has gone off the rails and uh we just saw some famous palm trees in the background there um <laughs> by the time halloween 4 came around you know they were I, I respect them for trying to create a little bit more of a legitimate midwestern atmosphere but it just doesn't fit with the universe that we've been set up for with uh, the first Halloween films. Um, and it just feels wrong, even though this is wrong. This is fucking Pasadena. <laughs> um, did, did you see him block the uh, that palm tree in front of this house with that tree? Yeah. Just, like, just to the left of the <laughs> that tree. <laughs> Yeah, it was it in in visiting this film it just reminded me of you know talking about that in between space Willie it really reminded me of how many of the great horror films kind of explore that world like um The Exorcist you know The Shining Blair Witch Rosemary's Baby mm. uh, it's kind of straddling it's this realistic world with with uh the supernatural kind of poking its head in and very much as um, Michael is this completely irrational figure who shouldn't exist, he exists kind of out of his element in this world. Um, you've also got Dr. Loomis, who um, is basically not only um, the Harbinger character, if you're following the Cabin in the Woods terminology, I, I, or if you're following Victor Miller, who created Crazy Ralph in Friday the 13th, the Greek chorus character, who's the, the person who's got the very flowery dialogue and tells everyone that they're that they're doomed and evil is coming and no one believes them um but uh fuck where was i going with this um he's uh, the supernatural (laughs) um oh yeah no he's he's basically a very melodramatic character out of a hammer film you know he's existing Mm -hmm. in this very contemporary 1970s uh environment absolutely absolutely He's, he... uh, you know, looking at looking at this movie. I mean, this this movie's been so influential, but it's also it's influenced so heavily by, uh, you know, well, movies like Psycho, obviously, 
that. Uh, Westworld was a big influence. The gunslinger mm. character was a, a big, you know, uh, progenitor of, of Mike Myers uh, as the stalking psychopath. But also, um, it's it, it is really or even like Universal films with Loomis standing in for the entire Transylvanian village, you know, <laughs> and it's a, just another example of Carpenter stripping everything down to its bare components and saying, okay, well, that village serves this function. We basically just want to, you know, show this, this sense of supernatural menace. So we can just have one guy doing that. And, you know, he'll just follow Michael through the entire film. And also kind of, uh, Huh. Thinking him, thinking of him as like a, a Van Helsing type foil to Michael Myers is very appropriate too, because I do kind of see Michael as being um, more of a m- mutation of the vampire archetype than anything else, as yes. a, a character who is evil by nature. Um, whereas, like at least from the Universal movies on, the werewolf has become more associated with uh, a character who's afflicted with something and is compelled to kill and doesn't want to. Like this, just Where'd you go to school, Damon? Uh, Fresno. Yeah, I was gonna <laughs> say this. This was another um, tell that this was California because yeah. these, these, you know, I, I went to school in California as well, and these outdoor um, type schools. I mean, obviously, wouldn't. Yeah, you'd be yeah. in a snowstorm. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And that's, I mean, like, I, I'm gonna probably point out every flaw and error in this movie as we go along and I will do it with absolute love because what amazes me is how little any of it matters there's just no way you would call this a bad movie for any of that it's hugely important and (laughs) I think it's very inspirational for uh, filmmakers (laughs) to just realize that this is I mean this is as close to a perfect film as you're you know if you look at it close enough there's, there's still errors there so I think it's not not reaching for that perfection you know like just if the if the mechanics of it and your vision are strong, then you can, you know, you can get away with a little, little mm-hmm. bit, or a lot. Just get the right things right. So goddamn scary. You talk about like fucking lightning in a bottle with this character of Michael Myers. Not only in the way that he was written, um, but a few things came together so beautifully that I don't know if they could have planned for. Uh, one, of course, being Tommy Lee Wallace, the production designers. Uh, buying a Captain Kirk mask and painting it white and fucking it up a little bit and turning it into this thing, which is one of the scariest uh, human visages I've ever seen in my life. And then getting uh, Nick Castle to to wear it and walk around. Um, To me, this is like absolute proof that it matters so much who you cast, you know, even if they're wearing a mask and the audience never sees who they are, you know, most, most most films will just opt for a stunt man. And, uh, Nobody so ever... what was the deal? His his dad was a choreographer or something. Was that is that what the deal was? His dad worked with Fred Astaire, I think. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. And huh. he was a he was a fellow USC student with Carpenter. Um, and I was I've never been able to find out why he didn't come back to play Michael. If it was like they didn't ask him or if he didn't want to, I would imagine, given the films that he made later in his life, that he wasn't comfortable uh, doing slasher stuff because he made some very schmaltzy. Spielbergy kind of stuff. He actually wrote Hook for Spielberg. Mm-hmm. 
did Last Starfighter, uh, was a co-writer on August Rush, which is one of the most excruciating films I've ever seen. <laughs> so his his taste is very much in that, you know, Augarsh Hollywood kind of stuff. So I don't know if he wanted to come back and play Michael again, but God damn it! Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, his his body language is just amazing underneath the mask. It was um something we didn't point out. One of the mistakes just was the. You know, it being uh, Castle jumping on top of the car at the asylum. And then at the end, you know, it's obviously the different actor. But e- even not watching it in Blu-ray, it's, it was pretty noticeable. Hmm. That was uh, P.A. Barry Bernardi there lying in the grass. That was his tow truck, I believe. They used it in uh, The Fog also. Oh. God, he gave his life for this film. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Authenticity. That's what Actual you do. <laughs> oh, also with it, I mean, the mask really reminds me of um, Eyes Without a Face. Is yes. The thing reminded he, me of the most. He did mention that once. But I was curious if, um, did uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre have any? In- I know Ridley, it as well. Ridley Scott mentioned it as an influence on Alien. I never heard Carpenter talk about it for Halloween, personally. Um if we're going to get into what influenced this film, we should probably acknowledge for a second um, the allegations that Bob Clark made, which Carpenter continues to deny to this day, that um, Carpenter once asked Bob Clark uh, after Black Christmas if he had any ideas for a sequel. And Bob Clark is reported to have said, oh yeah, uh, the killer gets caught and taken to an asylum, uh, escapes 15 years later on Halloween, and I was going to call the movie Halloween. Hmm. Uh, Carpenter says that's bullshit I have to take him at his word uh, Bob Clark is no longer here to defend himself unfortunately but we can I think definitely say uh, a USC short film directed by Terrence Winkless called Foster's Release uh, was a huge influence on Black Christmas and Halloween I think that short film was actually, actually like it even beat Black Christmas to the punch in terms of the whole call uh, the killer is, in, is calling from inside the house Um. Plot device, but uh, Dan O'Bannon, I think, played, even played the killer in that who worked with Carpenter on Dark Star. So this whole circle just gets smaller and smaller and more incestuous. And uh, on that subject, Deborah Hill, the producer and Carpenter's girlfriend at the time, was was responsible for bringing in Dean Cundy um, <clears throat> as cinematographer on this film, and his relationship with Carpenter. Uh, was so fucking good for both of them over the course of their careers uh, that Cundy became Spielberg's DP. And um, he started off working for Corman, including uh, Rock and Roll High School, which uh, had some effects by Rob Bottin, who would later work on The Thing. Hmm. So is it, do they have a good standing relationship? Because I guess I was, yeah. I was interested in the, in the extras that, that um, he didn't even mention Cundy. Which would just really surprise me because he said, "Oh, oh yeah, no, I, I believe they're still on good terms." The only reason that uh, Carpenter said he couldn't use them anymore is he couldn't afford them. Yeah, and that's and that's really where Carpenter's movies took a turn visually. So when, when uh, yeah, that partnership, it's just you're just missing something, you know. That just shots like this. Yeah, uh, oh, that's amazing just stay with you forever so, so something that i read that was interesting you know one of the reasons why he loves the the um 
the Panavision so much is Panavision came out and the anamorphic uh, widescreen came out in 53 which was the year you know he saw his first film it came from outer space and then in widescreen but there was another film he saw later that year i think that was so just you know just as he was starting to see films the widescreen format was was taking off and i think you know i mean obviously as a child he fell in love with it yeah it was it's funny when i think willie you said this was made for three hundred thousand. Uh-huh. And just thinking in those dollar terms, but then looking at how it looks, mm-hmm. you know, it just this. I never thought of this as a low budget movie. <laughs> well, it's crazy. Well, it's so thousand that it was made and translates to one point one million in today's dollars. So which which I know, I mean, it's still super low budget for then. And half the budget was for the the camera. But um, OK, yeah, I, I think by sacrificing that money on this on the look. I, you know, it makes it timeless. I mean, this, it's absolutely gorgeous. This could have been shot yesterday. Yeah. There was some of uh, Johnny Carpenter's cigarette smoke floating just by there when she yeah. said he wants to take you out tonight. <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing. I mean, he, I remember he, he was telling his crew, you know, even back then working on these movies, you know, like if we do our jobs right, these movies will outlive us. So we have to make them, you know, we have to present them as well as we possibly can. And uh, you know, it, it was such a, a big part of of his look, and it was essential, I think, in a lot of what makes Halloween work. Not only in uh, composition of shots, you know, to have uh, a side of the frame empty for Michael Myers to potentially pop in or not, um, but also the um, the uh, the vertical blur—is that what it's called? Uh, when Panavision goes out of focus, they're very shallow lenses, and whatever's in the background yeah. tends to stretch and look a lot thinner and taller. And that works so amazingly well for all the shots of Michael stalking in the background. It really makes him mythic. Great thing so, about making everything master shots too is that you don't feel as directed as you do with, uh, you know, other horror films where they just have these crash zoom into everything, and and they're following in tight, you know, roaming around. When you're looking at these master shots, you know your imagination is doing that work for you. You're 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 looking at you know the hedge in the distance, and it has this menace that you wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, the use of space is is great, and and you know the uh, cuts are more are more visible in this aspect ratio, so it lends itself to the, these long takes as well. But um, yeah, I. Mean, this type of shooting so that this these type of master shots are still um not still but they're very popular in asian cinema where they do these really long takes and they don't do coverage and um i'm a huge fan of it you just get in the world every time you have you know a psychological note that that you know time and space has been changed a little bit so when you, when you really sit for a long time with these characters in this in these big spaces it just is psychologically it's it's wonderful mm-hmm. <laughs> so so the way the way he shot that did, did that i mean does that imply that it's a supernatural form? it sure it sure seems like it yeah yeah so this this james ensor guy this uh, this artist mm-hmm. is really interesting he's a belgian a belgian artist um who was very influential in in um, uh, a couple different forms of art, but 
what, what was interesting is he he was also a, a master of the harpsichord. And towards the end of his career as a painter, he started uh, focusing more and more on music, which is exactly what, obviously, what Carpenter's doing now. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of his, like, doppelganger. Whoa. Whoa. Does anyone think it's weird that a teenage girl has a James Enser poster in her bedroom? That's why he wants to kill her. She's, <laughs> she's a sophisticated lady, this one. Yeah. She's... Michael is threatened by her she's knowledge. She's smart. Yeah. Dutch yeah. Painters. Right. And also, it's the, the harpsichord drives him insane. The harpsichord just, like, plays on his nerve. Yeah, he was a huge uh, influence good. on expressionism and surrealism in Belgium. That's really cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. I know nothing about him whatsoever. I know nothing about most of the stuff you guys are talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like I like pumpkins, and they are nice. So were, were they? Were they? Did they have like a leaf babysit? A leaf shower that was being thrown from off screen for these. Uh... Oh yeah, yeah. They shipped these in from Maine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so art department. They did. Uh, oh, Connecticut. Sorry, paint a bunch of leaves brown, and uh, you'll notice that like <laughs> we're, sh- we're they're shooting in springtime in. Pasadena, so everything around is green, but these brown leaves are following Laurie everywhere, which is kind of awesomely <laughs> symbolic in its own way. Um, but yeah, and then at the end of every take, the uh, you know the crew just rakes up all the leaves, puts them back in the bag, and throws them back out for the next take. Just that little little clump of brown leaves right there on that lawn, and that's it. And uh, <clears throat> Carpenter, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was not Carpenter's first choice. Um, I've heard him say, I've only, heard, I've only heard him say he wanted the girl from Jaws 2, which I think either means Donna Wilkes or Anne Dusenberry. Probably Donna Wilkes, although they, all, they both would have worked, I think. Um, but they, they uh, whichever actress it was, turned him down. And then Deborah Hill suggested uh, Laurie Strode. From kind of a shrewd capitalistic point of view, she thought it was an angle, like her being the daughter of uh, of uh, proto-slasher royalty with uh, Janet Lee. You just said Laurie Strode instead of Jamie Lee Curtis, I by did. the way. <laughs> <laughs> you totally did. I was confused. Thank Same you. Same person. <laughs> In Willie's mind, she'll always be Laurie Strode. Well, I mean, Even when she's they're, selling they're, a yogurt. They were, they were going to make a movie about Charlie Bowles, weren't they? They had like a Kickstarter project. To... Oh, like a fan film, yeah, like the Russell, right, the yeah. Russellville murders or something like that. The Russellville hacksaw murders, yeah. <laughs> so I'm seeing Anne Lockhart was his first choice for. Oh, uh, okay. She was not in Jaws two, is that correct? Um, let's see. Where did we get this rural main guy to be the uh, like groundskeeper? Of <laughs> they buried him vertically. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> he sure did. 
So when she first got in the car, we heard a, a song by John Carpenter's band, uh, the Coupe de Villes, which also features Nick Castle and Tommy Lee Wallace. And now I think we're into Don't Fear the Reaper territory. Yep, yep. Um, yeah. You know, Saturday Night Live, that was a funny sketch and everything, but uh, I will always associate this song as being Michael Myers' theme. <laughs> or the beginning of The Stand. That was yeah, okay. that was like the only watchable portion of that movie. <laughs> or the end of The Frighteners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot yeah, about that. that. Um, totally yeah. forgot about that. So today, I, I think we watched this a little earlier today, and... Um, I don't know how I never really sort of registered that Jamie Lee Curtis smokes some weed here. Totally. That Laurie Strode smokes some weed here. And uh, that's really kind of, that adds some depth to her character because she's really sort of comes across as such a good girl, you know, Mm. such a kind of wallflower, stay at home on a Halloween night kind (laughs) of, or babysit on a Halloween night kind of hit the books teenager. So, yeah, yeah it's, gotta add some dimension. It's true. Go ahead. Dan. I think any other uh, any any copycat slasher film from this period probably would have had her and make some comment about yeah. how you yeah. should do that because it blah 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 to your brain. Yeah, you know? absolutely. But isn't that part of the moralistic misreading of the this film, right? Yes. This talk about that, Willie. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, it was a it was a common assumption that it was only because the final girl didn't have sex or or drink or do drugs uh, that she lived at the end, and there was a common uh, interpretation that it was some kind of moralistic message. Um, but really, what's going on? Carpenter has has said this over and over again, and I think the film bears him out if you look at it. Um, it's not that she, it's not because she's a virgin. It's because she is so shy and so repressed and such an outsider um, that she is more observant than all of her friends who have social lives and are distracted by them, uh, who don't notice the person who's standing across the street watching him from the bushes. Ooh. Good news so, for you introverts out there. Absolutely. So yeah, no, Lori smokes pot. And it's not that she doesn't want to date a boy. She actually expresses a lot of interest in Ben Tramer here, but she's just way too shy and repressed to ask anybody out. And she thinks that uh, guys think she's too smart. Um, so she's kind of, she is this classic carpenter outsider protagonist. Um, most of his character, of his protagonists are these kind of dark horse outside characters who are shunned by society and then like by the third act wind up having uh, some pretty valuable skills that society needs from them. Also, um, um, if I may. Yeah, of course. The, it seems that the final girl, um, while rarely a virgin, actually, you know, and rarely totally straight laced, um, is always smart. <laughs> right that's that's sort of the big thing is the survivor is their defining characteristic is that they're able to outsmart the killer mm-hmm. just real quick talking about a smart smart that last scene was directed by deborah hill i thought it was really yes oh, I, didn't cool. know that. I, think, I think it's one of the most beautifully shot films and i mean uh scenes in the film and it was really just kind of thrown together they needed something to kind of transition from day to night and so at the very end, you see the car kind of just taking off down the street. You, you see the the color timing. They're very slightly grading it down uh, 
in post-production and then all of a sudden we just slam bang into night here it's it's a very awkward transition uh, yeah so that's okay they tried <laughs> and we got that scene out of it so it all worked out it does kind of give you that feel though of like autumn and it's suddenly fucking dark and it's like 4 30 <laughs> and right. you're like what the hell <laughs> Another uh, another deviation that Halloween takes from movies that came after it that uh, tried to realize Michael Myers spends a lot of time stalking people in cars. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And uh, there's all, there's also the question of how did he learn to drive? He's lazy. If he's been in a you know a mental institution his entire oh life. Oh my god! But mm. you know after that you know we we've, we've got like uh, you know this whole genetic line of, uh, of slashers who who don't go near a car they spend all of their time you know kind of wandering around in the woods or you know uh, lurking motorized so oh, that's yeah I mean it, it, it works it works for me because it's like you know maybe he just just knows you know he just knows things yeah it, it kind of I've always thought that what made him what makes the the third act chase when he's following Laurie across the streets so goddamn scary like that he's walking um, it's always, it always made me feel like he had some diabolical knowledge that none of the other characters mm-hmm. had like mm-hmm. he knew mm-hmm. he was going to be able to catch up to her eventually and yeah so for me I think I just, I just apply that to uh, he just knows how to drive Loomis has the line of you know maybe someone around here gave him lessons which kind of sort of half-assed justifies it but it's fine but thank God Rob Zombie came along and cleared that up and oh, just God. had him walk. Didn't have him drive at all. Ugh. Just fixed it. Fixed everything. Rob, Rob Zombie fixed so many critical errors with his film. <laughs> yeah, he really, he made it so much better. <laughs> I mean, Michael might, he, he wouldn't be able to do all these things unless he was the size of a wrestler. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And he wouldn't be capable uh, of this kind of cruelty if he wasn't from if you Otis know, Firefly wasn't family. his dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also Lou, I mean, you know, for all he did to, to Michael, making Loomis this touchy feely Dr. David Viscott character, it, it just that was unforgivable. Fuck you, Rob Zombie. <laughs> Fuck you, Rob Zombie. Fuck you. Just make a movie called Fuck You Rob Zombie. <laughs> I'm there. Stab him for two hours, <laughs> and the sequel could be and Eli Roth. You know, <laughs> thanks. I don't Jamie. understand. So, to, um, Deborah, so this is the same house as as the beginning opening mm-hmm. scenes. So, um, so they had they had Pleasants at the beginning of the mm. the shoot. So they had him. That opening shot First was, week. yeah. The opening shot was the very last thing they shot. Okay. So they had time to fix the house up. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, only the areas that the camera was going to show. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it was very much a, very much a group a group affair. Everybody pitched in and fixed up the house, Revenge of the Nerd style, and everybody moved lights around in the. You know, inside of the house uh, as the camera moved from the front to the back because they didn't have enough lights to, to, to fill the house. 
Got a few too many no. lights if those, sh those camera shadows are any indication. But Sorry, what? I, I just have to say that for as little as Bill Myers, what he does with these few scenes with Donald Pleasance are just brilliant. Yeah. And I, I mean, I know that he had considered other actors before Pleasance. He had, you know, Christopher Lee. And you were saying, what, Peter Cushing was another one who he was yeah. considering? Yeah. I can't imagine any being quite as convincingly ominous and semi-psychotic as, as <laughs> Loomis. Peter Cushing, he, he had a certain vulnerability that would have been interesting. I could not picture Christopher Lee at all. He's just way too way too tall yeah. and imposing. Yeah, Christopher Lee would have played it straight dark. Um, it's, it's so interesting how, how they got him, too. You know, that he said no originally and then agreed to do it because his uh, daughter liked assault on. I, yeah. I heard that she liked the film, then I heard another place that she liked the music, like like the soundtrack. Both, is I'm what sure. She loved yeah. about it. Yeah. yeah. She's and, a woman and, uh, after my own heart. <laughs> <laughs> and he did kind of give Carpenter some shit. Yeah, at the beginning, he kind of said, you know, my daughter wants me to do this movie. I don't really <laughs> understand this character. I don't know what I'm doing. And I think he was kind of busting Carpenter's chops a little bit because, I mean, Carpenter clearly knew what he was doing writing this character, this kind yeah. of out of time, out of place. Um, and, you know, and then like in, in interviews, Pleasant's, you know, has said, you know, I've brought my way around to seeing it from his point of view. It's not supposed to be realistic. Yeah, I bet he was a little bit of a bitch. <laughs> sure. He probably was, but he's he's the he's the headliner in this film. Yeah. That's, no, the, he's, first, he's that's great. the first name you see in the credits. Yeah, he took so what do you take twenty thousand instead of points in the film? Is that right? That's, that's correct. Ooh. Yeah, it was going to be uh Yeah, the budget was originally three hundred thousand and then uh, they tacked on an extra twenty for Donald. I love her goofy nerd laugh in that that mm -hmm. shot. Yeah. It's awesome. Little Lindsay there is now one of the real housewives of Beverly Hills. That's sad. Oh. Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, that is sad. She's and, probably uh, making more money than she did from this movie. <laughs> and as far as Hitchcock references go, like Sam Loomis is is the obvious one that everybody knows, but of course Tommy Doyle is uh, uh, taken from Rear Window. And I think at some mm. at one point she actually answers the film Doyle House, which is how uh, the maid answers in Rear Window when Jimmy Stewart calls. Oh, wow! I did not know about the Rear Window reference. Totally. And he's looking out of the rear. Right. Right. Yeah. Have Real you seen? Have you guys seen uh, someone's watching me? I know. I haven't seen, seen it. Very Rear Window. It's wonderful. It's one of the one of the best mm. TV movies I've seen. I haven't seen it had gone to his uh, school to lecture yeah he went to usc right is that where he went yeah uh -huh. carpenter mm -hmm. yeah they got lectures from fucking everybody orson wells and uh anybody who was alive basically i think he got to hear hear speak but i guess the hitchcock really stuck for sure yeah i mean famously um oh carpenter is a <laughs> Carpenter's a very big Howard Hawks man, and that definitely shows. Oh. And he's always said that uh, he's wanted to make westerns, and he brings 
a lot of influence from 1940s melodrama into just about everything that he does. And again, it's that wonderful juxtaposition of very contemporary, sometimes boundary-pushing subject matter with a, a very 40s feel, you know? Yeah, he... Um... How much butter did she spill on herself, by the way? I mean, she just stripped down <laughs> completely naked the butter. <laughs> I'm gonna start bringing. I'm gonna start bringing butter with me everywhere I yeah. go. Yeah, it, it was hot butter. She was gonna scald herself. Oh, she didn't get her clothes to off. take all, off all your clothes all the time, Dan. <laughs> yeah, Dan just the good thing she wasn't excuse. in the movie theater or anything, you know. And again, you know, I mean, you can take their justifications, however, you know, as seriously as as you want to personally. But Deborah Hill's insistence was not that. Uh, it was not to sexualize these girls before they were murdered, but to make them more vulnerable, which is why she got Andy down to... Uh, this, this shot here is brilliant with yeah. the dog. I couldn't figure out how, how they did it. Uh, shot, um, it and shot it with the film sped up and slowed it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah which is amazing. Totally. There's what, the thing from another world? Yep, playing on Carpenter's TV, Carpenter's own personal copy. Um, right. Which is a Howard Hawks, sir. there you go. Yeah, yeah. The thing, um, something cool. I was a quote from Hawks that I read is a, a good a good director. you <laughs> is, is what he said. But it's interesting that he, um, you know, back, back to Hawks. It what was interesting about Hawks is just uh, across how many different genres he worked. And I think that required really um, Carpenter to work across different genres and do mashups of genres, but also to use like the shorthand in, in the way that Hawks did. You know, within the genre, and and his ability to um, you know express personality, you know, his was different genres. Okay, so you know how um, Loomis is sort of the harbinger. Mm-hmm. This kid is kind of parallel mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. Loomis in in that way. There's that early scene where those kids are teasing him because of his fear of the boogeyman. Here he is, so in this war- uni- warning her about the oh, boogeyman. So are, are the kids ever in danger in this? Yeah. Oh, so yeah. he's evil, right? He would he'll kill whoever Absolutely. He would totes, gets in his kill way. Kids. So after he, after he kill, if he killed her in the closet, would he go and then bust down the door and oh, I would kill them as well? I would think so. And, uh, you know, I mean, after Assault on Precinct 13, Carpenter clearly demonstrated that he had no fear of going there. Good way to start that movie. That that movie is that movie is pretty similar to this uh, this film in many ways, too. Yeah, it's like I love love these shots here. Yeah, that's like amazing. It really is. Yeah, Assault on Precinct 13 is basically like a gang of Michael Myers. <laughs> it, yeah, it pretty much is. I mean, they're they're um, in some ways it's like a zombie movie. They're like a goblin army. They're not really <laughs> human. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so it's part of his assault. Um, is, is that what you'd call it? Like a, the these assault films, like um, or siege siege films. Mm. So assault on Precinct Thirteen. Mm. This one thing, right? Could be considered. A siege. Yeah, sure. 
but it all kind of goes back to um i guess one of his favorite films was rio bravo which is uh siege for sure yeah assault on precinct 13 takes a lot of influence from rio bravo for sure maybe like 70 percent rio bravo 30 percent night of the living dead i love this double through the window so good thing is amazing that's an amazing shot so he said this was one of the hardest um scenes to shoot here in this little shed just getting the camera to move around or i I think just the complexity of all the different in the small space but he had said it was one of the most difficult of the film to shoot um and also that and that's another tell that it's not you know the midwest you wouldn't have your washer and dryer like out in a shed away from the house (laughs) it's true John Carpenter's voice. And, oh. And, oh. and just just the way he goes about, you know, stalking uh, stalking Annie, is is very, you know, it's if you're looking at Michael Myers' intent, you know, he's not just going around killing people. He he has a he has a desire and a need to terrorize them first. He has to scare the shit out of them and gaslight. <laughs> Um, I'm sorry, what were you saying, Damon? Mm-hmm. I got distracted. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember now. <laughs> but yeah, he, no, he's very much uh, you know, still kind of a kid playing really morbid Halloween pranks. Just stalking and lurking. You could look at look at his character that way. He's he's like an overgrown, malevolent child. Those knee socks, man. Yellow like knee them? socks, no. They're pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. They give you a boner. They're all right. <laughs> uh, this is fantastic. Fuck. <laughs> Yeah, again, that beautiful, beautifully choreographed oh, master God. shot. So again, the good. They let you yeah. play with the background. Yeah. It's like even worse when you don't see him anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, oh God, where is he? But yeah, Carpenter is usually always the, the voice on the phone or the voice on the radio. But shows up a few times as a voice in the fog. That's Tommy Lee Wallace there playing the voice of Dr. Dementia. So I love that he has Forbidden Planet in this too, just because the sound design is so amazing in Forbidden Planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he he mentions um, the Forbidden Planet score being a pretty big influence on his move to uh, compose his own music with synthesizers. I mean, that was the first uh, fully electronic score, and it's it's super whacked out, man. It's just wonderful. That was the first uh, therapy mm-hmm. used, right, for a score? I think so, yeah. These babysitters are actually like 
pretty all pretty like wholesome <laughs> i mean they want to invite their boyfriends over and get laid and stuff but they actually kind of seem to care about the kids absolutely yeah she actually cares enough about the kid to like not be like okay i'm just gonna leave you it's home called alone. acting okay <laughs> <laughs> well it's also called you know it's just a different it's not a it's called, you don't get paid if the kid is dead <laughs> I don't know man I had some 70s babysitters who were <laughs> not interested in my welfare much at all <laughs> I had a babysitter drop me off at, ever at a gas station really yeah, at a gas station where her friend worked oh, and then just god. went away for like three hours oh my god <laughs> Oh my god. Oh wow. Let me wow. wander around the gas station. Wow. So yeah. that's what I'm talking about. Like <laughs> this is a pretty she's a pretty responsible person. I mean, you know, she's going off to get laid, but she's making sure the kid's okay when she does it. I had a I hot seventies babysitter named Dottie Vandergoot who told me what fucking was. Dottie wow. Vandergoot? Yeah. Told she told you. you or showed you? I know, right? Just told me. Oh my okay. god. That's but okay. I was like seven. Wow. Wow. Dude. At at the gas station run, I saw monsters. That the same. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> oh my god. That's better. <laughs> You haven't seen sex in public till you've seen like cigarette butts on actual butts. <laughs> My cousin taught me the word twang, which apparently is a slang <laughs> word for penis. I've never heard it. I've never heard since. that. I've never heard that. I never she heard it before and I never heard it since. It sounds more vaginal than penile. Twang. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe just because of the, it sounds like twat. I don't know. Eh, twang. Sounds, sounds like, like a. It sounds like a Tweety Bird cuss word. <laughs> <laughs> Look my twang. <laughs> it's Tweety Bird's cock. <laughs> Tweety's twang. <laughs> now, watching this on TV as a kid, this scene, of course, was always either either direct cut to the back seat, or they would kind of pan and scan over. Oh god, I hate oh. pan and scan. Yeah, but I, I love her. I love her slow realization in that scene. I think it's great. Yeah, she doesn't notice that all that the door is unlocked this time either. The fact that he's been breathing in that car for a very long time <laughs> to fill it up with that much—it's such a great shot. It's amazing. Yeah, you really f finally get a pretty good look at the mask. And just how fucked up it is. Just looks so calm. Oh, that just sucks. What a way to go. He's such a dick. <laughs> <sighs> He's way more of a dick in Halloween too. <laughs> that yeah, hot tub that hot tub murder just seemed so out of character for him. I don't know. Halloween too, yeah. I yeah, I mean it's aged very well in light of how bad the sequels and remakes got. You know, it, it has, but you just can't look at it as a direct descendant of this movie. Yeah, it's they just added so many extra moving parts that this movie didn't have and didn't need. Did uh, not need the sister thing at all. Oh my you know God, is Tommy Doyle? No, that was, was kind of like the midi chlorians of the the Halloween franchise, <laughs> you know, giving yeah. her the sister. 
I think he's just an astronaut. Oh, okay. Because he's got that belt and that totally. little... And he's got the haircut, too. It might be, like, the closest they could get to it without getting sued uh, to a Luke Skywalker yeah. outfit. Yeah. That's just amazing juxtaposed against the Forbidden Planet music. It's so fucking good. Yeah, it's great. It's so good. And again, so many uh, like counter counterintuitive moves from Michael, you know, just walking straight across the front yard with a dead body, <laughs> you know, not not giving a shit if any it's just It's like he knows so, that only the little kid that no one's gonna believe is gonna see him. It's like he's the yeah. only one who knows that he's in a horror movie <laughs> and you know that he's not gonna get caught, you know, until the end if if you can then. But it's it's kind yeah, of like you know it follows Tommy. you know it's got that it has that same kind of dream logic where you see things happening that don't make any sense but um, you know that just kind of adds to the overall horrifying mood of it. Yeah, and rewatching this, I guess I was really realizing how much it follows steals from from this, but it kind of like reincorporates the things mm-hmm. from this this and reuses it and just and it kind of gets theory of you know the creature and it follows just being death mm, mm. which is pretty much you know evil or death is what supernatural yeah michael rep- representing <laughs> also you what? know mundane um <laughs> mundanity and suburbanism yeah, back in, and in no the parents in the same way mm-hmm. no yeah no parents. no adults mm-hmm fucking with the kids so here's another way to protect children you could just come out the two three five really really sets them up for moves those what moves the the bus the um oh yeah and it's the val lawton Mm-hmm. Bus. It's they're, they're called buses. Like when you kind of distract and then have some something come in off screen. It's funny too because Carpenter has gone on the record for saying he hates uh, the Luton bus. Uh, oh, Luton. Okay, that's yeah. it. Yeah. There was a um, there was a documentary made by Mark uh, Gatiss about uh, films in the '60s, '70s, and '80s, and he had a pretty pretty cool interview with Carpenter. And Carpenter just went on like at length about how he couldn't stand Val Luton. Uh, oh, did one of us just die? Did somebody commentary track? Huh? What? Is that oh. what just happened? What? It's some really loud crumpling. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, maybe that was me reaching for candy. Sorry. If it was, I, I I'm sorry. From the candy. No. Oh, it's because it's right by the mic for them. Oh. Yeah. oh, 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 oh. Okay. I'll just move that. Yeah, you can, I'll help you out there with that. There you go. Too. Four people who were going to be here tonight did not show, so we could say that they died. <laughs> That's an amazing van Bob's got there, man. That is a great van. And great glasses, too. Yeah, why do they need a house to make out in and they got the van? Seriously. I think they they sold them the glasses with the van. (laughs) Also, that wig. (laughs) 
So can you legally amazing. show underage kids drinking now in film, or would, would they would it just be too controversial? Oh, I'm sure you can. I mean, can't they, you? Days and Confused got away with it. I don't know. Uh, huh. Things have changed since then. That'd be just weird if they couldn't. That would well, be technically weird. there's no alcohol in Budweiser, so they're okay. It's <laughs> 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 so a big part of the uh, the Carpenter Cundy look, of course. Also, is uh, all these uh, very dark night shots with uh, with blue lighting. Uh, to stand in for moonlight, uh, it's kind of the default Carpenter Cundy color scheme in the same way that like yellow keeps popping up in all of Tarantino's movies. But uh, every movie's got a little bit of a different like accent color going on. Obviously, orange and green play in pretty huge here. Um, the fog's got a lot of blue and purple going on. Escape from New York's got a lot of red and green. Mm. Well, I heard this blue was influenced by uh, Chinatown. Hmm. Which I think was seventy four. Okay, only saw that once. I think you. I think you mentioned that the there was a, sh- a shot of a sheriff car pulling up in the frame that was uh, taken from Chinatown as well. Oh yeah. I think the only time I watched that was when I watched it with you, Dan, many years ago when you lived in Portland. It's a very good film. I'll have to watch it again. But yeah, that, that blue color palette, and like you're talking about the other color palette, like really reminds me of uh, Argento. Mm. And uh, yeah, no, Argento, I think, was also um, a bit of an influence. Carpenter was a very, he got to see a lot of really cool movies that uh, nobody mm. in America really had access to while he was at USC, I think, including mm-hmm. a lot of the old, um, like, uh, Choi Hawk mystical kung fu movies that were i think a big influence on big trouble in little china oh nice yeah but uh, they definitely cited uh, deep red as being a pretty big influence and friday the 13th uh Definitely took a lot of influence from uh, Mario Bava, uh, Bay of Blood specifically. And PJ trips over the Dolly track right there. Not a big one. I don't think I would have <laughs> it, noticed it if she it, hadn't pointed it, it out. It fits right in, though. She, Absolutely. She, she's wearing those big yeah. wedges. <laughs> be tripping over anything. I used to work at a coffee shop near a high school and um, I'd see these like teenage girls walking by in like these super high heels. <laughs> they just were like tripping over themselves like they clearly couldn't do it, but they were they were trying, <laughs> goddammit. Sorry, you just reminded me of that. <laughs> A little free association. Absolutely. <laughs> So he was penetrating her left hip right there. In case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very, uh, very Tommy Wiseau. I was just thinking that. <laughs> Either that or he's got like a little right angle act. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, maybe he's got a hook dick, you know? It's, that could be. Well, 
Yeah, and here's the here's the first actual, you know, I mean, if you, if you were going to that it's it's only the teenagers who you know do drugs and have sex that that get the knife. Mm. Uh, these are really the only ones who do that, and uh, Annie tries, but she she doesn't quite get out the door. Oh my god, that was fast. Oh yeah, I think I say that every time I see this movie. I'm like, oh my god, how could that have it been fantastic? It was still five times as long as that sex from the beginning, though. Huh? Oh, I did. Oh I did yeah. Wanna... In the beginning, he didn't even bother to take his pants off. And <laughs> Maybe this is what inspires him to murder. Is just you know, <laughs> the sex didn't go on for long enough. <laughs> it could be. It could be Sting under that mask. He could just be pissed off. And... <laughs> These gentlemen aren't showing the ladies. You know. So I, I forgot to mention uh, on that first kill, just how how. Uh... Interesting, I thought it was that the first, act, you know, the next act of kill after the beginning doesn't happen for like 54 minutes. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty good. Which is talk about slow it burn. It is, and it's still creepy as fuck. <laughs> you know, some Just critic, I think it might have been Pauline Kael, gave him shit place. for that. Said he had no sense of timing. Really? Yeah. Oh right, I heard that. That's such a weird criticism because mm. it's such a good thing about. <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, it works for me. Yeah. Well, it's, it was so. It's um, it's been great rewatching how unbloody it is, and just how that was all. Yeah. You know, in the past, just yeah. your imagination fills in in those blanks. Yeah. And that was always the the big glaring thing to me in terms of. Oh man, here we go. Um, the contrast between Halloween 1 and 2, I always found it so strange that they tried so hard to recreate the feel and the look of this movie in Halloween 2, um, but then made it feel so kind of exploitation-y, Friday the 13th-y. You know, at that point, like, Carpenter just seemed very cynical towards the audience's ability to accept a movie like this that didn't have that much blood and gore in it anymore. Yeah. I mean, even that's off-screen. I mean, just everything. Yeah. They show his feet. There's no blood coming down. Yeah. <laughs> Foot acting. That's a great, great moment there. Just the, the cock cocker spaniel cocking of the head. It's so good. Oh it's my god. So, it's like his defining so moment. So menacing. It's the. Uh, yeah. It's just so just like interested <laughs> and cold and curious and and not at all passionate. it's pretty good it just it starts off pretty funny and just gets creepier and creepier Mm -hmm. Well, talking about his sense of timing, I, I just think it's so brilliant. I mean, he, you know, he talked a little bit about in the extras that milking the suspense, you know, that being the mm-hmm. the scary part of it, just how long he ta- he ekes these scenes out is just mm-hmm. amazing, I, especially for a young filmmaker. 
Mm-hmm. Like him having the the um, sensibility how effective this was. Mm-hmm. And it really is the stuff of nightmares. The way that he slowly, slowly walks. You know, but you get the sense that there's, I mean, there's just no way to escape, but he's, I mean, if, if you had your wits about you, you could get away from him so easily, but he's again, like it follows or yeah. Yeah. Does that go back to the mummy tradition? Yes. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, The villain that goes slowly but cannot be stopped. Creeping Mm. death. Slow and steady wins the race. (laughs) That's why you don't make crank phone calls, because nobody knows when you're serious. (laughs) There's a lesson there. <laughs> Again, great stuff with uh he uses the telephone to even better effect in someone's watching me. I highly recommend checking it out. Is it easy to find? I think it's on YouTube. I think I saw online recently that they're showing they're doing kind of like a some movie-ish version of that book, Shock Value. Probably like in the same way they did. They made one of uh, Going to Pieces, the slasher film book. Um, and I think they're going to be showing Foster's release, the short film, as a part of that package. Mm. So oh, wow. we, we may get to see that one one of these days. That would be interesting because yeah, yeah, that was I mean that was sort of the progenitor of like a two major influential slasher films from that time. Hmm. And, you know, Black Christmas was the first for sure, but uh, Halloween was definitely the the most influential. Yeah, it, it, it forged the template. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, this is a little goofy. A little goofy. <laughs> Should have brought a book. It's just that he just now sees the car. That's just that's a bit okay. That's a bit hard to swallow. Yeah. Well, the shot would have been better if it would have been further down the street, at least. You know. Yeah. Was pretty far down the street. Okay, now we see it that way. Yeah. No, it's yeah. That was definitely not a POV shot. Mm. No. Mm -mm. Not Hitchcockian. So real quick before we get into the. Ali here. I just wanted to talk a little bit about the, um, you know, the auteur theory. Do it. And well, just um, I don't know. Just watching this really made me. And just thinking back to some of the other Carpenter films that I like, all these different genres. Just how he's operating within the genre, and his voice comes through so strongly. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. you know, and it's more than the writing because I mean he's written. He's written th- other things that other people just aren't, they just don't click like his own films do. So I think it's just really, um, yes, yeah, I have different feelings about the auteur theory, just, you know, that, a, that the piece is, you know, only, like, I don't believe that. You know, obviously Mm-mm. a team ma- makes a film, but his, I think his voice is so strong that it really, really is a strong case for, um, 
you know the strength of Altair theory for in, in this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. instance for sure. Well, he has his hands in in so much of it, you know, that's made with so much love. I mean, he does the music and, you know, he's directing it. But then I think, you know, the people he picked to work with were uh, people who were really compatible with his vision. And And yeah, most of his, his choices have a pretty solid motivation. You know, his, his golden age films, like, like the word vision applies you know, it's not it's not just aesthetic. It's not just visual. You know, there's very strong thematic stuff that links all of his films. And a certain kind of film language and Well, another thing that uh you, you see in his earlier films that you, you don't see later on is uh lunar emptiness in in every frame. You know, it, it almost looks like nobody lives in this town. Yeah, you know I mean? it's uh, <laughs> the streets are all empty. Yeah. The person who's who's walking, or you know, if Loomis is running, an empty street. And you see the same thing in Assault on Precinct. Well, I mean, obviously that's mm. by design. It's a it's an abandoned ghetto neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But in Escape from New York, you you see a, a lot of the same. You know, the the menace is all in the shadows. It's the yeah. thing. Yeah. It was a lot of shots of just Kurt Russell doing walkbys mm. in gutted out abandoned streets in Escape from New York. That makes up a lot of its runtime. And, and it's, I mean, from a, a budget standpoint, it, it, it makes a lot of sense because you're not paying, you know, extras to be in the shot. You're not, you're not, uh, you're not cluttering uh, the scene with, you know, un, any unnecessary expenses. Mm. But, I mean, God, it's it's just. It's one of the things that makes this movie so horrifying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty canny. I mean, to, to yeah, so he's using the emptiness to just paraphrase what you're saying, uh, using the emptiness to compound un- unease, you know, your sense of unease. Mm-hmm. It's pretty rare. I mean, it's pretty rare in a film to you know, you, he's utilizing this uh 2.35 aspect ratio and just these big expanses of just empty space. Mm-hmm. Really ramps up your your anxiety level. Yeah, it's very bizarre. Mm, it's like even mm. um, even for the 1970s, it seems like the trick or treating got over pretty quickly. No one's trick or treating after sunset. <coughs> oh yeah, that's right. Only in daylight hours. Hmm. And I think on YouTube uh, for this whole like the last reel of Halloween, you can actually hear an audience track uh, from the theater uh, back in the day of Halloween's release. And it's it's pretty amazing to hear how engaged everyone is. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like numerous people um, on the crew have talked about what an interactive experience this became, kind of like Rocky Horror. We had people like, like one of the first instances where people were yelling back at the screen at the characters. It's just very vocally and very viscerally involved. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, nobody was ready for this. Seventies <laughs> like, shouting, "Duck off the fucking stairs!" <laughs> <laughs> and I came around to this one kind of late, you know. Like, my, I, I think I saw Friday the Thirteenth before I saw this. I was eight, I think, at the time. Oh my god! And no. Why'd you wait so long? Yeah, right. <laughs> Friday kind of made a gore hand out of me, and my the first time that I saw Halloween, I was pretty disappointed at just how 
tame it was in comparison. But a few years later, uh, I watched it again and for whatever reason was ready for it, I guess, and just scared the shit out of me. Now, uh, I remember you, you, you used to have the, the novelization of Halloween, too, and that, you know, that actually, like, dove into, like, the backstory and went into, like, the origins of Michael and... Fucking lame, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True it did, but it, it, it makes you wonder where they, where they pulled all that from. I mean, was yeah. it just a... Because that, so that wound weird. up in the sequel. It wound up in Halloween, too. Oh, my God. Oh, I did want to mention the, the script. And just reading... <sighs> reading over some of the script and seeing um it, you know it's very they, they they put in a lot of the directors he put in a lot of the the camera moves and things that you're not really supposed to do in a script but since he knew he was directing it you know it was like uh, specific glide can shots and um he knew very specifically how how it was going to be shot which i thought was interesting <laughs> ah. <laughs> got me yeah this is where you see real his real motivation he's just i think i think his being a killer is secondary to his being a prankster yes (laughs) he's a halloweener and still no gore that's just crazy that you could have that whole scene and not have a whole bunch of blood and this is one of the best shots in film it's really good. Oh, oh, it, every God. every time. I mean, how many times have you guys seen that? And it is still creepy. Every time. I have to. This I may. I haven't. I haven't counted specifically. I may have seen this in the triple digits. This is really? one of those movies. Oh my wow. God. I've been watching it since I was ten, and you know, sometimes you just want to have it on in the background while you're doing something else. Sometimes you have to do a commentary for it, but I just want to like <laughs> transfer. I may have seen this more than any other movie. I want to transfer some of your brain cells to my brain, Willie. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. <laughs> oh, fucking okay! Here we go. Here we go. Uh, I mean, like this is just ah. <laughs> the fucking music here like as if the music couldn't get any more minimal than it already was for the first 80 minutes of this film now we're just into just like one note territory just one blaring quarter note and this like kind of synth this like it's it kind of reminds you of like the car horn that annie fell onto after michael killed her i don't know if that was conscious or not i kind of hope it wasn't and so that was a continuity error too oh yeah oh just real quick when she busted the window but there's no broken uh, glass. Oh yeah. <laughs> to me, this is the scariest yeah. thing in the whole film. Yes. Oh, this is, yeah, yeah. This is. Oh yeah. Oh, it really did a fantastic oh, job. Of, and they just shut oh, down. My oh my god. <laughs> it's so awful. That's no so trick or treaters, please. Up. <laughs> When was that incident in New York where yes, the woman, where that was, woman getting was getting attacked? Mm-hmm. When it helped? Mm-hmm. Kitty, Kitty Genovese. Kitty yeah, Genovese. For, yeah. When was that? Was that 80s? 60s, or? That was the 60s. Oh, oh 60s, okay. Was, mm-hmm. Late 60s, yeah. Oh, God! Uh, the idea was that uh, the more people were around to witness it, the less likely they were to do something because they assumed someone else would be someone doing else something. Would do, oh, it's awful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I just um, I was thinking about this earlier about how she's in clearly in mm. fight or flight mode, but she's still able to make intelligent decisions. That's like the scariest three seconds oh, in cinema history <laughs> for me right there. Oh, so Ooh, you little fuck. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, and he even knows about the boogeyman. Door and he's on the still... other side. From the doorknob outside. Uh, it's on the right outside. Oh, that's... Oops. Yep. Good catch. Okay, so I was trying to look up uh. what was going on you know, in the world, like around this time. So I guess that Jonestown Massacre was, or, uh, yeah, was it Jonestown Massacre? Is that what the, yeah. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. James. The end of yeah. James, at the end of 77? Yep. Well, 78. Yeah, it was that fall. It was right when this would have, did this come out around Halloween No, no, this, so I think Jonestown happened, Jonestown happened in the fall, and then this came, they yeah, shot this in the spring him. of the next. <laughs> oh boy. Oh, would that a, a single blood knitting needle, needle, needle would do it? Yeah, yeah she has a, a little blood on her shoulder, too. And a little on her hand from breaking the window. Yeah. And, and yeah, your, your carpenter's just clearly gaslighting to throw the knife away. <laughs> yeah. And just sit there, not not leaving, not getting away from the killer. <laughs> yeah, but he's still playing well, the fucked up music, so you know that it's not over. You know, well, some was more that shit's going to happen. When this came out, or was none of this was a trope? Mm. Yeah, so like the whole. Not... Yeah, the, the fact that it happens twice, it's 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 pushing it. Yeah, that first time there, um, and Jamie Lee tried to kind of justify the first time by just saying, you know, that after having put Michael down for the first time, that she's looking at the knife and being revulsed by it. Uh, and that's why she threw it away. Um, she hated having to go there, I guess. The second time she throws it away, it's totally unforgivable. <laughs> but So kill cop doesn't know his daughter's dead. Yeah. Uh, that's awful. Uh, that's another kind of uh, mean-spirited element they push in Halloween 2 is you're there with him when he finds her. Uh, and right here, Dan, is where the uh, the kids are in jeopardy. Where the what? Where the kids get get in jeopardy. The shape is coming yeah. up the stairs here. Oh, God. <laughs> this is great. When they scream here. Yeah, he knows. <laughs> this kid knows, man. Yeah. <laughs> From this closet scene coming up here, this is... Uh, the one time that Tommy Lee Wallace actually puts on the Michael oh mask. He does a pretty good job. I, I never noticed it was somebody else. Now she's trapped in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> that shot's fantastic. Just great. It 
its closet has no clothes. <laughs> there's a, a shirt. A lot of hangers. There's one blue thing. Oh, God. Yeah, and Michael being more prankster than killer. Mm. We've already seen him put his hand through a drawer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's totally f toying with his prey here. Yes, he's channeling Shelley Duvall here with the... Hmm. Oh, yeah, totally. Mm. Well, you know, fight, flight, or freeze. Here she freezes. She already flew and fought. Now she's freezing. Okay, maybe she's going to fight. And Wouldn't have thought of that personally. What? The coat hanger thing. Oh, yeah. No, me neither. She's me fucking either. brilliant. She's a smart lady. Yeah. Yeah, dummy. Yeah, fucking get him. Get that dummy. Now go stab him again. Yeah, stab him again, for God's sake. Will you just, like, cut off his limbs or something? Just cut off his limbs so all he can do is headbutt you. She finally gets around to that, like, six or seven wound. movies later. Right? It's the only really a flesh wound. <laughs> really disturbing thing about Michael in this final sequence is that he it's like he sticks with her for so long because he having somebody... Yeah. who's good at fighting back against him. Yeah. And he, he just wants the game to go on. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. There he is again, the sort of prankster, the sort of Halloweener, <laughs> hmm. the playful child who is also yeah. pure evil. And here's one of the, the best shots coming up. Yeah. Of any horror film. Absolutely. A lot of moments like like Hitchcock was famous for that too, especially with Janet Lee and Psycho, just kind of telling her, you know, like, okay, the camera is what I'm concerned about. You know, I need you to walk from this point to this point. I need you to figure out what your motivation is to get from here to here so that I can film it. Don't ask me what your motivation is. And there's a lot of stuff like that that Carpenter does to Jamie Lee. Just, I don't know why you don't go with the kids. There's no reason for you not to. I just want this shot to happen. And thank God, this is the best shot. <laughs> Ah! <laughs> so fucking good. <laughs> it's so scary and it's so good. It's so good. And I have uh, no idea why they don't walk, Loomis. I don't know why uh, they reshot dumbass? the uh, God the balcony fall for Halloween two because huh. it looks way lamer Fuck. in Halloween two. It's kind of awkwardly edited here but that one shot of him just kind of going up the ramp and over the balcony at the beginning of Halloween 2 is, is terrible so good so good <laughs> and then here when she gets his mask off that is uh, another actor Tony Moran who they got just for this shot and he's been uh, milking his two seconds in this movie at horror conventions for years now. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the purpose of showing his human face? I think just to kind of show him as a very normal, almost angelic looking, kind of the way that they, un un they unmasked him as a kid. 
Just like, oh my god, a normal person's doing this? Yeah, I, that's that doesn't sit well with me in this in this film is actually showing the face. Hmm. Huh. Well, well, it, it didn't bother I me. Know. I just was curious why. He's been murdered and come back to life a few times already. And, you know, you kind of forget that he had human origins and then they reveal his face right before the person who knew him as a human. Well, didn't believe he was a human, but the person who knew him in his human form (laughs) shows up. Kind of makes sense. And then again, one of the more famous anecdotes about Halloween's production was Donald Pleasance saying, okay, John, how do you want me to play this last shot? Do you want me to play it as though, oh my God, he's gone, or as, or as I knew this would happen? And clearly that's the, the take that he used at the end. He asked mm. him to play it both ways. It's mm. ah. so much creepier than shock or surprise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Empty yeah. spaces. So that's a continuity error too. The knife is still in, near the couch. Oh. Oh. Oh, yeah. Huh. This carpenter's way of saying, um, not only is is, is someone Michael... breathing really hard. <laughs> Ron, who's that behind you? Jesus, <laughs> it's not Ron. Yes. Is that just the movie? <laughs> that was Michael. What were you saying, Willie? Oh, yeah, that was it's Michael. The movie. Oh, yeah, the breathing. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah the, the, <laughs> just the implication God. that the carpenter wanted with that last little montage yeah. there was not only is he gone, he's everywhere. I never noticed mm. that. The breathy thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was great watching these Yay. end credits at how few people worked on this film. I mean, mm. this was such a tight crew. Hmm. Yeah, it was. Ex- yeah, it was very tight budget, and you know, just no loose loose ends and no unnecessary parts. Carpenter, I don't think, was like a very strong believer in motivation or backstory. <laughs> I mean, everything that you see happening is just there. You know, it's a it's it's kind of brilliant in that mm, way. Yeah. Kim Gottlieb was the still photographer, and there was just a book released of, I think, all of her behind-the-scenes photos, which I'm dying to get. Mm. Ooh. Yes. It's a really short production list, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's super short. for I mean, a film that, you know, it feels like a, a big Hollywood film, and just realizing, I mean, just how bare-bones it was. There were I mean, more... There's, there's one grip. Yeah, more people on the cast than they... Yeah. <laughs> Which was interesting because I was um, I had read before about this rule of eight that you have like eight main characters and there really are just eight it is the ideal amount to have in a film that you can follow that an audience member can follow and that's exactly how many main characters there are in this. Hmm. Are you guys counting in your head? <laughs> <laughs> I trust you. Well, long time coming, you guys. Yes. Holy shit! That was fun. Absolutely. Was how was it yeah. all the way? How was it all the way through, Ron? It really was. Next week, Rob Zombie's Halloween. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Ron. What was it <laughs> like to, to watch the whole thing? You know, I'm pretty sure I've seen the whole thing. Okay. I, oh, but, okay. but I don't. <laughs> but I still don't know if, if hmm. all at once. But I've hmm. seen every part. 
own kind. Yeah, yeah, um, just not. And and I think a lot sitting. of times, just you know, like on TV, mm. and. And, and bits and chunks of it mm. and and a movie like this just gets destroyed i mean we already mentioned it, it these movies get destroyed in pan and scan mm-hmm. yeah. because huh. they're yeah. really wide and they're making all this use of it and i mean you you mm. basically make it a different movie mm. um, when you do that well, to it mm. well and, and before we yeah. started watching yeah. the movie we were talking to about you know how for all of edited for tv version of halloween that's the one we watched like I don't know how yeah. many times when we were <laughs> yeah. growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, that's true. And uh, it's I, I would kind of like to see that again. I would I'd like to see the edited for TV version. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm sure it would probably trigger a lot of memories, you know. A little bit less sex, but probably same amount of violence. Less sex, but some some extraneous scenes that probably yeah. shouldn't have been in the movie. That uh, mm. a few more totallys. Mm. Yes. Oh, and <laughs> by the way, put it on as, um, a bonus Damon, oh, sorry, as far as your plans for next week, no. <laughs> I will totally. I would love to do a commentary for Rob Zombie's Halloween. I know Damon. I know Davis probably right wouldn't ahead. show up for it, but I would be. <laughs> you guys just say the word. I'll be there. It'll be cathartic for you. Yes. To get all that hate and anger out of your system, dude. dude you have no idea. <laughs> yeah, talk, talking of which, I, I just wanted to mention real quick how. Uh, Carpenter was saying that this was panned. Fix it. That reviewed this hated it, and it wasn't until somebody from the Village Voice mm-hmm. loved it, and the audiences started going crazy for it. That all the um, all the reviewers, and even ones that had given it a bad review, went back and re-reviewed it, mm. and gave it a good review. I think that explains, you know, why he doesn't like doing interviews, or like I, I think he doesn't. I think he has a mistrust of um, interviews in the press in general. I mean, it feels to me like, I, I don't know well, that's, what, what you guys I mean, think. That has proven to happen to Carpenter so many times in his career, and he was lucky this time around that it happened shortly enough, like his film was still in release when people came around. Mm-hmm. In the case of The Thing and Big Trouble, it took years, and it kind of derailed his career. Mm. Yeah, it's crazy. The th- hit. That just yeah, that still blows me away. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was misunderstood for... You know, kind of the same reasons that this one was. You know, people felt that um, too much was being shown, and uh, it, it was just ridiculous. Because one of the early adopters uh, in the critical community was was Roger Ebert, who was, you know, notoriously critical of slasher films back mm-hmm. in the seventies, uh, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. eighties, mm-hmm. and he just he loved this film. It was like one of horror huh. movies. Interesting. He actually made a few uh, Hitchcock comparisons, I believe. Oh. Well, you know, it is a lot more about what you don't see Mm -hmm. than what you do. Anyway. (laughs) Okay, so we could just keep playing. (laughs) Okay, start the movie over again. And just keep talking for the next few hours. What do you guys think? I'm off tomorrow. I got nothing to do. A full commentary on the menu. (laughs) The bang bang. <laughs> All right. All right, guys. Shall All we right. say good night? Yeah, yes. why not? Good night, Gracie.